You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. Welcome to TFM's local watering hole. I am just one of your hosts here, Matthew Rushing, coming at you from Navarro, where things have gotten a lot cleaner since the last time we've been here. And I'm so excited uh, because with me, as she is every single week, the Marshal of Navarro, Christy Morris. Uh, that's Fennec Shand, actually. I'm not the Marshal. Oh, oh, I am so sorry. I, I just don't know why I would get you two mixed up. But did you get your Spotchka delivery? Yeah, I did. Thanks. So uh, okay, all good, good. I I know how much you yeah I know how much you love that and a, <laughs> and a guy who is never without his spotchka. We're so excited to have back. It's been a while, but Bruce Gibson, welcome back to the six hundred two club. Thank you for having me back. It's it's a sad year because I think it was this year that we lost Penny Marshall. Since we're talking about Marshalls, <laughs> this is <laughs> so, this is true and and definitely this, sad. Wait, actually. this is why I haven't been on for a while, people. It's this kind of humor that just does yeah, me. Yeah, you just flew over just, so many people's heads. But um, <laughs> yes. well, we are excited to be here. We have so much to get into because we are going to be talking about season two of The Mandalorian now that that has wrapped up. And of course, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Please do make sure you're subscribed wherever you get your podcasts there. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please do give us a star rating review. Follow us on Twitter at The 602 Club and on Instagram at The 602 Club TFM. We'd really appreciate it if you did that. And then uh, you can find us, uh, we're, uh, you know, we're online at trek.fm and of course you can find us on uh, facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm there's a listeners only discussion group of the babel conference where you can talk to listeners all over the world uh, and then of course uh you can find us on patreon if you really want to support the network like our associate producers do ken trip davis grayson ryan millett and daniel noah uh, they make sure that all the shows we do here on the network keep coming to you and if you do appreciate the content you get we would love for uh, you to support us. So you can go to patreon.com slash trek.fm and see how you can be part of our team. And in all honesty, as we move towards 2021, we could definitely use your support. So again, go to patreon.com slash trek.fm. So guys, getting through all of that, because we just have so much to talk about here, you know, getting into uh, a season of television. Luckily, it's only eight episodes, but they're always jam-packed. And um, we're just what we're going to do with the format of this show, everybody listening, we're going to go episode by episode. So uh, it there was only going to be, you know, eight sections to this show. Um, so we're just going to talk about the things in the episode. And so the first episode we get is the Marshall uh, and it was directed by John Favreau uh, and it was also written by John Favreau. And guys, I mean, Coming out of the gate, I did not expect, honestly, to have an episode this big. And this is probably, I would say, is this the longest episode of The Mandalorian we've ever done? Because this one's close to, like, 50-something minutes. So it almost felt like watching a Star Wars movie at some points. Yeah, that's what I thought. I think it is the longest. I don't know if it's the longest of the entire series. 
I think it is the longest, at least in season two. I haven't looked at the length, but I, you know, this episode, I love this episode. I, you know, I feel like I'm going to say that almost on every episode, but for this one, I just remember when it came out of the gate and seeing the crate dragon and that whole thing going on, it was so big and so epic and the special effects look fantastic. I was just, I was loving this. I haven't watched it in a while and I want to go back and, and watch it again. And the, the whole thing with the Marshall, all that was cool with Cobb Vanth. By the way, I just looked it up. Penny Marshall died two years ago. I'm totally off. It wasn't this year. That being said, I really did like this episode. <laughs> Thank you for updating us. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> yes, though, I completely agree. I, I know all of us are probably going to say we love every episode pretty much, but I really thought that it was incredible seeing them start the first episode of the new season off this long, like you were both saying, but also adding in so many huge story elements that we've waited this long for. I mean, how many times have we all debated whether or not Boba Fett was still alive? And then finally, at the end of the first episode of season two, we see that he is. It is now officially canon. Boba Fett did survive the Sarlacc pit. So that was awesome on its own. But then also getting to actually see a crate dragon in live action, which is something that previously we only read about. Um, getting to have, personally, uh, one of my favorite actors ever playing Cobb Vanth, uh, I think was really cool to see. And... Uh, it definitely had that Western vibe, I think, more than a lot of the episodes we've seen. Yeah, I mean, this is absolutely a Western. I mean, uh, you know, we have all the classic elements of, of a Western here. And, um, you know, I to me, one of the things that always struck me is, is how at the very beginning we basically start with this, you know, uh, boxing ring fight club type scene. Uh, where we see our our first uh, Gamerian guards in the series, when and they look so cool. Um, but that whole scene, to me, you know, it's something we're going to see throughout the entire uh, season, and it's something we kind of knew, obviously, from the first season. But they're going to reinforce over and over again this season how valuable Beskar is to people. That they're willing to try and basically kill Mando to to get it. Um, and, and, uh, you know, obviously it's something that really, you know, you put that on the market and you're going to make a ton of money. So I loved opening like that. And I also kind of felt like it was just a great extension. You know, we go back to Tatooine here in this episode. And so that beginning kind of reminded me of something you might've seen at like Jabba's palace. I just, I can imagine having that fighting ring in front of Jabba at his palace, you know, in like a Clone Wars episode or, um, you know, it in Return of the Jedi, you know. So to me, that they they keep hitting on in this show the ability to truly um, make this connect with Star Wars. But at the same time, they're doing something new. We haven't seen that before. Right. You know, we haven't really seen a alien fight club and uh but it just felt so organic to everything that we have seen and you know that's something i think we'll probably reiterate over and over in this season as well but i mean i had no idea that the crate dragon was that big and, and i was mm -hmm. 
I was a little sad that we um, they didn't have the money to let us see the entire thing because I feel like it would have been so awesome. But I'm so thankful we actually got uh, one in the first place because, you know, ever since we saw Star Wars and you see its skeleton lying up there on the dune, I've always wanted to see one of these things. And now you have. I mean, I check know. that. That's it's what's great. real cool. Now we've seen, and not only that, but the uh, Tuscan Raiders, seeing them in yes. single file, mm-hmm. which we've heard but never really seen. So we got to do that. You know, you said about returning back to Tatooine when that started. I was like, oh, we're going back to Tatooine again because it's like I always think of Tatooine as something that a place that people don't really go to very often. So the Mandalorian was already to there Tatooine? once. Exactly, exactly. And then he's back. But, you know, outside of that, it was like, okay, cool. Because this is all playing out really cool. And, you know, the Cobb Vanth stuff is from the Aftermath novels, which we reviewed years ago here on the show. (laughs) And so we're pulling him out into this. And, uh, you know, there was a scene where we see where his flashback getting the armor we see a Jawa with red eyes. And I kept hearing that Jawas with red eyes are off-world Jawas, but then yet we're seeing a red-eyed Jawa on Tatooine. But then we saw, I think, something later. um, Oh, I'm thinking of the holiday special, the Lego holiday special. They have a yellow and a red-eyed Jawa on the ship, but that's totally different. (laughs) No, I mean, that's a great point, Bruce. Uh, You know, getting the, the Cobb Vanth and the fact that obviously they had put this character into canon because the books are canon right now. And so... Uh, and they they did not go against that. So to bring back the armor of Boba Fett, you're gonna have to bring this character back, unless you were gonna divorce from what you had said earlier. And so, uh, and Chris, you're absolutely right. I mean, getting Timothy Oliphant to play him was absolutely perfect. Yes. And you just, I mean, the way that the armor doesn't really fit him right, and he's just too tall for it, and he's just this lanky looking dude, but he looks like the classic western hero uh, and obviously he was unjustified and, um but perfect casting uh mm-hmm. and and i mean i just loved his interaction with mando i loved his interactions with the tuscans and how that kind of plays into uh classic archetypes that we know very well i think that all worked great um and then bruce you mentioned like the fact that and one of the things like john and i uh john mills and i have talked on aggressive negotiations like you know, this show has really taken the Tuscan Raiders and completely nuanced them in a way that we never would have thought possible, I think, when we first saw Star Wars. Uh, or even just the prequels, you know. I mean, they're usually just taking pot shots at, you know, um, uh, pod racers or, you know, taking Anakin's mom. So we only really know them as these kind of, like, quote-unquote evil characters. And, and this show has completely changed our perception of of you know, the Tuscan Raiders and who they are. Yeah. And that's the beauty of having shows like this and getting more shows and more series that we can really build on things that we know very little about. And that's, what's so exciting about this visual expanded universe. Yeah. I want to jump in on that too and say, I thought that that was especially cool having the Tuscan Raiders now have 
sign language and actually having deaf actors playing the Tuscan Raiders. I think, too, it was neat to see how, you know, because water is scarce there, it's a, you know, a desert planet that they really have to find it in creative ways. And Cobb Vanth may think that that's weird and gross, but that's what they know. And so they're insulted when he doesn't have some. Um, so I think those interesting things that they added in, too, were really cool. And and the fact that they have, you know, like family structure and cute little dogs. Who doesn't want to live on Tatooine? I mean, I don't. <laughs> I don't want to live there. It feels like yeah. the Arizona of, and I just, uh, I, I'm a huge fan. Uh, and sand, you know, it gets everywhere. It's just coarse and rough. And, yeah. Um, I think, to me, too, I love the fact that we do throw in some of those nods. And, you know, uh, something that, you know, Favreau had said in an interview, he's like, you know, y- when he was making Marvel, uh, he knew, you know, you had to think about the fans, but at the same time, you also you, so you wanted to make sure that the fans were excited and happy about what you're showing them. But you also wanted to bring in new people, and so one of the things we start in this this season in this episode, you know, we've got our five, <laughs> which is great, uh, and uh, then we also have the fact that Vanth Speeder is made out of a pod racer engine, which looks very similar to Anakin's, and so mm-hmm. like just having those type of things in there that, you know, we fans would pick up on, but somebody who's brand new to Star Wars wouldn't care at all about. Um, I think, to me, this episode is actually quintessential Mandalorian in the sense that it shows how you do both. And, you know, those Easter eggs for fans um, don't have any real impact on the story or anything. They just make it fun for us. Uh, and I, I, I really appreciate that they're not afraid, and why should you be afraid, in the same way that Marvel had done the same thing, which is don't be afraid to pay off the fans, and I think that that's something that I just really appreciate about the writing here, The Mandalorian, and, and honestly, you know, John Favreau wrote almost every single episode this season, uh, except for one, and so, you, you know, you gotta say, I the guy definitely knows what he's doing, if you ask me. Like John Favreau knows his stuff. Well, and they know especially that with something like this franchise, that the fans here, including Favreau and Filoni, are what is making all of this happen. You know, it's what started it all. It's what's continuing to provide money to make these kind of things. And so yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, the beauty of doing a TV series at this point, and I was just now thinking about this as we're talking in the script, is that you don't have so much of a committee. Because when you're making movies, there's this, everybody's looking into the scripts from, you know, management to whoever, they're picking apart, rewriting, do this, do that. In a series, you don't have that much time to do it. So you almost have to leave them just do their thing and and just get it moving and get it. And so you don't have all these hands in the pot trying to mess with it. It's a great point, Bruce. Mm -hmm. That's a, and I had not thought about that, but I think you're absolutely right. And I I mean, gosh, after season one was such a hit and, and, and all honesty, they've given them like what, three more shows to do as well. I mean, so they, they, they trust these guys, you know, like they've earned the, the, the right to be able to do this. Um, you know, one of the things that I was thinking of uh, when I was rewatching the episode was I really love how they foreshadow where Mando's going to go this season. You know, when he gets off the ship and, you know, you've got um, uh, Peli, uh, 
you know, telling the droids, no, 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 you know, he, he doesn't like droids, you know, and, and he's like, no, no, it's it's fine. Like, it, you know, he might as well give the ship a once over. It, it needs it. And and you get this moment where you see that he his opinions obviously have grown from where we saw him in the last season because of his experience. But I think one of the things it, it does really well is it foreshadows the fact that Mando it, Din is going to go through a lot of changes this season. There is going to be some some things to which he is going to let go of because he wants something else more. Like, to me, that was really interesting, and I, I just picked up on that, and I thought, wow, they, they're doing a great job of kind of promoing what's going to come for the rest of the season just right here. How do you mean? Well, you mean, you know, this, uh, so this whole season, I mean, we're going to see Din change his mind on some things, be willing mm-hmm. to um, do some things that he would have basically thought and because, you know, for him, it's a religion would have been anathema like you would never do, you know, mm-hmm. um, and he's going to legitimately um, do some things that could get him kicked out of basically, uh, quote unquote, his order of the Mandalorians. Right. Okay. The Children of the watch. Mm-hmm. Right? So, I mean, to me, that's that's fascinating to see that happen. Yeah. He starts to see that it's not always this one order. You know, there's others. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, too, you know, his his hatred of droids ended up changing because of his experience with IG-11. And we're going to see his experiences begin to change him in other ways as well throughout the season. So I just thought that was a nice precursor to what's going to come. Um, so the uh, the passenger is our second episode. Uh, and uh, at the very end of of that episode um he uh he picks up a he picks up a passenger that that uh can lead him to more mandalorians um and this one is directed by Peyton Reed and was also written by John Favreau and so um what did you guys think of this episode okay this was uh my least favorite episode of the season doesn't mean i didn't like it it was just my least favorite I just didn't, and I'd like, I'm really interested in this part of the conversation with you, Matt, because I know you said that you felt like there was some good development for his character in this one. I want to hear about that. But for me, it just felt very much like a filler episode. And I hate saying that, but um, it just, it just didn't stick with me as much as the others. I mean, it was cool to see the X-Wings show up, uh, see him crash on the planet. I, I thought it was fun seeing... Well, I'll, I'll still call him the child for now. The child eating the eggs and those little those spider creatures or whatever chasing. I mean, it was a thrilling episode. It was kind of fun. And then it kind of slowed down once he got back to his ship. And it got a little weird to me. I wasn't really sure what the X-Wing pilots were doing there. Like, like they, di- they didn't really seem to help him. And I, I don't know. It was just a little weird for me. It just didn't work that well. I get that. I, you know, I will say that I think there's definitely issues here and there, like you're saying, Bruce, with when the X-Wings come back to help him out of the cave, that it seems like things are a little too easy um, or, you know, that don't really quite make sense in the order that they happen. So I I can definitely get on board with that. But I, I did think that it was an interesting side quest, I guess is what I'm going to call it. 
to, you know, his main goal. And I mean, we see this happen a lot throughout last season and this season that he's constantly having side quests to distract him from the main goal. But I think that it was cool to see how the child would react to spending time with other people, um, or I guess frog people. <laughs> and uh, I personally found the incident with the eggs to be funny because, I mean, as soon as you saw that it was a frog lady, I was the first one in our household to call it out that he was probably going to try to eat one of those eggs because we've <laughs> seen him eat whole frogs before. So, yeah, and now they're in a pretty yes. blue container calling to him. So I, I didn't have a problem with that. But I thought it, I thought it was cool having a new kind of character and seeing how all of them interacted and having this softer side kind of of Mando of uh, realizing that he's got to care for somebody other than just him and the child. Yeah. And, you know, I think you said it right. A side story. That's what it feels mm-hmm. to me. I mean, because you could go from the previous episode to the next one and skip this. And I don't feel like it really has any big loss if, if you miss this episode to the story. You're not going to be lost. Wait, what's going on? Did I miss something? Or It didn't really have any big consequences that I saw in the story, but I did enjoy it. I mean, I thought it was interesting and fun and I did like the frog lady, especially when they're, you know, in danger and she actually hops. I know some people didn't like that, but I thought that was great because I mean, that's what a frog's going to do, right? Hop. I will say one thing that I, (laughs) I would have missed if they didn't have this episode is I feel like there were blatant references to the alien franchise. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. With the child coming upon the sea of eggs on the ground, and then suddenly, one by one, they start opening up. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, to me, the thing that this episode did that's really interesting, and and now that we know some of the other shows that are coming, and as you watch this episode, it it does help lay the groundwork for uh, the New Republic's presence in the Outer Rim. Um, and the, the idea of like, you know, they have their transponder rules and, and obviously this goes against everything that Mando wants to do right now. Cause he's trying to stay under the, you know, under the radar, literally, you know, he's, he's not transponding, uh, to, uh, who he is because he doesn't want people to know who he is. And so that part really made sense to me. Um, I also, I just really appreciated that battle at the beginning he has on, Tatooine and he's making his way after they crash his speeder and you know that Jawa <laughs> that rogue Jawa oh yeah who he takes for a ride literally on his jetpack was full hilarious <laughs> yes I talk about a scene. laugh out loud um, moment yes yes um so uh, but I also think that you know is you're kind of asking you know specifically Bruce I, I think this is a growth moment for for Mando in the sense that we do see that he is a character who does care about more than himself. And even when it like it, it frustrating, it frustratingly puts him at a, at a disadvantage to what he wants to be doing right now. Um, but I think the biggest key to this episode is that we, he's going to travel at sublight to get to this other planet because he wants to be able to find the Jedi he wants to be able to find Mandalorians that can tell him more about the Jedi. And he's willing to do whatever it takes for that to happen, even though this is putting him and the child at danger. I think that is a theme that plays out through this entire season. And it kind of connects with that idea of his growth 
uh, that I was talking about, where we're we're going, we're seeing this character, um, what's really important to him, and what's really important to him is is fulfilling this destiny, this mission he was given by the armorer at the end of season one, which is to take the child to its kind, and um, obviously that's because he's grown so attached to it as well, and so. I think, you know, this episode helps do that really well. Um, and I just, you know, I, it's probably not my favorite episode of the season, but like you, Bruce, I just enjoyed watching it. I thought the special effects in it are outstanding. So, I mean, the fact that they're able to do this stuff on a TV show just boggles my mind. Those spiders look amazing, as good as anything mm-hmm. you saw in the prequel trilogy. And heck, anything you see in movies these days, like, mm-hmm. it, it looked that good. So... Uh, and uh, if you're afraid of spiders, this is this is going to be the episode that gives you nightmares, like me. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but Christy, do you like eggs? I do. Okay, well, that's good. <laughs> and you know, like you, Christy, um, I you know I didn't have a problem with the egg thing. Um, I, I you know, it uh, people I think take everything way too seriously when it comes to fantasy entertainment these days. It's like, um, and you know, we eat eggs all the time that are unfertilized. So are we against that now too? I don't, anyway. Yeah. So I know, weren't you a little surprised how much it broke the internet about the eggs? It's like people, I don't know. It's just because we've all been at home all year, but people are taking things way too seriously. Guys, it's Star Wars. It's a TV show. And I mean, just um, look at it like you're saying, like animals. It's predatory yeah. instinct. Yeah, because now that I think about it, the child, as you said earlier, Matt, we and or Christy, you we were saying has eaten frogs, live mm-hmm. frogs. And no one complained about that. But unfertilized eggs. Oh, my gosh. How dare you? <laughs> Oh, man. So, yeah, I mean, I I think, uh, honestly, for us, the consensus is it sounds like this might not be our favorite episode of the season, but it wasn't like it was an episode that, I I mean, I I rewatched the whole whole season today, and and I enjoyed rewatching this one um, just because there's a lot of fun stuff in it. Uh, And I thought, um, I thought, to me, it was obviously our first introduction to Peyton Reed directing a Star Wars episode. And I I liked the direction of it. I thought everything felt like a great Star Wars story. Um, you know, he the 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 way the action was directed, and just the episode itself, the way it all looked and was shot and everything, I thought was great. Um, so as his introduction to the Star Wars universe and directing a Star Wars uh, uh, property, I was like, okay. That's good. And what's going to be really interesting is that, you know, he actually directs the final episode of the season. So we'll get to talk about him again. Um, but I think we should probably get to the heiress because there's so much to talk about in this episode. Directed by the utterly talented Bryce Dallas Howard, written by John Favreau. And can I just say, she got a lot of flack from a lot of people for her previous season's episode. This, to me, is in contention for this season's best episode. It was phenomenal from start to finish. Yeah, I'm completely with you. I think that especially having the twist where it's the the first time we all think that Grogu is definitely going to possibly die (laughs) when he gets eaten by the giant fish thing. 
but uh, having the fishermen was really cool. I think, it, of course, I know Matt, probably above all of us, was thrilled to have Bo-Katan in live action for the first time ever. Uh, and, you know, confirming where she is now in the Star Wars timeline, what's going on with her. And uh, that she and her two other Mandos come in and save Mando and the child. And, and I mean, like, I'm just going to say it. I'm a huge fan of Sasha Banks, a.k.a. Mercedes Vernado, who is now a Mandalorian as well. Uh, yeah, yeah, this is a fabulous episode. This was a great uh, episode. And then Bo-Katan shows up. And, you know, when things like this happen, and then she mentions Ahsoka, you know, you must go find Ahsoka, <laughs> all these things. I don't know what it is, Matt. But when those things happen, I think of you and I'm like, oh, my gosh, Matt's probably right. freaking out right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I absolutely was. I mean, you know, I have been a huge fan of Bo-Katan since the Clone Wars. And I mean, I just I loved all of the stuff that we got with the Mandalorians and the Clone Wars, you know, uh, from her sister to her, to Bo. And, you know, it, it was fantastic. And I'm so glad we're going to continue her story and the fact that, you know, I. I'm a big fan of Katie Sackhoff as well. And so to see her get to actually play the character in live action, and she even mentioned in a saw somewhere, we don't know if it was just Twitter or an interview, but she was talking about how, you know, Dave and her were talking about how cool it would be maybe one day to see her in live action. Um, and the fact that she could do it, I it just, and she, the, everything was perfect in that. Um, and, you know, I, I, gosh, I love Bryce Dallas Howard doing the whole, uh, Apollo 13 reference at the beginning as they're falling to the planet trying to land and not get themselves killed. Yeah, because uh, she <laughs> the, said that was intentional. Mon- yeah, which is great, uh, as it should be, you know, for her dad, who's directed Solo, one of the best Star Wars movies out there. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, um, I, you know, I, I just, uh, the, the funny things like the Mon Cal mechanic uh, that uh, back talks uh, Din is great. And, um, but, I mean, the biggest part about this is that when you bring Bo back, she is uh, a full-on Mandalorian. She's as Mandalorian as it gets. There is no more Mandalorian than her. I mean, her sister ran the planet. Um, and so when it comes to that, going up against Din Djarin, his ideas of what it means to be a Mandalorian, we got so much information in this episode, which I absolutely loved, you know, we really get a chance to dive into, you know, who are the Mandalorians that, that Din is a part of? And we learned that they're, you know, religious zealot group uh, who is trying to turn Mandalore back to its ancient ways, which seems even more ancient than Death Watch did. Um, and, you know, her and him coming face to face, this is too people claiming to be the heart of Mandalore and who's going to win out. And I think, you know, it's kind of interesting because I, this is another place where his preconceptions about what it means to be a Mandalorian are completely, you know, uh, smacked, you know, like, so I, to me that, I mean, learning all of that uh, on top of having her back, that's the thing. Like we're really, connecting that uh star wars lore together and and i that's my favorite stuff 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is the episode that really starts to tie into that lore where anybody who's watching The Mandalorian that hasn't seen The Clone Wars or Rebels and all these other series, they're now it's like, okay, now let me go back and find out more about these characters and these situations. And to your point, when Din sees them take their helmets off, that's shocking to him. Mm-hmm. You know, a Mandalorian doesn't take their helmet off, and yet they're just like, oh, yeah, whatever, come on. Oh, you're one of those. And that really has to do something to his psyche of just like, wait, what am I? Is it, Am I doing the right things or the wrong things? Are they right or wrong? What is my place here? What what really is a Mandalorian? And then that's part of his quest now. And to piggyback on that, too, it, I love how it becomes a point of contention again in another episode about the whole deal with the armor and with Boba Fett's armor being passed around and how, you know, the armor to the classic born and raised on Mandalore Mandalorians is a really big deal and it's passed down from generations and you know they feel like Boba Fett doesn't respect it and treat it like that yeah I mean this is going to be something that's really going to play into the season as well and you know the question of what does it mean to be a Mandalorian uh, is a big question and obviously you know the beauty of the Clone Wars is that it added a lot of nuance, and now the Mandalorian show has continued to do that, and we're connecting those nuances now. Again, bringing Bo into the show allows them to be able to start to do that, which I think is is the thing that just I love the most. And then on top of that, I mean, them attacking that Imperial ship together I mean, watching Mandalorians in live action, in action like this, you know, um, obviously the sin last season was fantastic. Um, this was even better. Like, they they ratcheted up the action. And I mean, it was, I mean, Bo going crazy on people and the Mando running, you know, down that hallway being shot out with the bombs in his hand to throw, like, all of that stuff was just phenomenal. I, this is... This is legitimate. I mean, Bryce Dallas Howard should be so proud. This is a phenomenal episode of The Mandalorian all round. And yeah, just to see the Mandalorians and their jetpacks and doing all the fighting, it looked to me like you took an episode of The Clone Wars or Rebels and made it yes. live action. All the stuff that we've only seen animated, now we're mm-hmm. seeing live. And and I do have to give props to for the direction and the writing for having Bo-Katan say, we're taking this ship and we'll see you soon. Not just, yeah. I hope we get there, you know, we are taking your ship. She's completely confident, and that's totally her character anyway, so it, that was just the icing on the cake for me. Well, and I mean, of course, then, you know, the two things at the end, which is she's looking for Moff Gideon because she's looking for the Darksaber, which is phenomenal. I mean, again, connecting to the story that she's lost it somehow and can't wait to get that story and hopefully in season three um and then of course the jedi that she mentions is ahsoka tano which couldn't be any more excited about that but one of the points that i thought was really interesting is she knows exactly where ahsoka is um that she's on this uh forest planet of corvus and that means she has to i think she has to be in quite constant communication with ahsoka because that mission Ahsoka's on doesn't look like a mission that she's been there for, like, years. Mm-hmm. Like, 
that looks like a mission that she's just on at the moment, um, to me at least. Yeah, no, I I took that too. So I figure they're either in contact and they're working together on something recently, or they're Facebook friends. <laughs> exactly. And Ahsoka had posted a picture, you know, about what she was doing, and yeah, about right. the devastation there, and how people should like uh, you know change their profile pics, you know, to support Corvus. And Ahsoka said, "Hey, if you see Thrawn, send me a picture." <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I mean, I, I, you know. This this episode is is one that I think um you know you could kind of go on and on about mm-hmm. um but I think the other thing that's really cool just as we wrap up this episode is we also learn you know Bo-Katan's desire is to retake Mandalore you know uh the empire is gone and the goal here is to drive whatever is left off of Mandalore and make it for Mandalorians again to bring them back together uh and not only that, but to to do that, you know, she needs what we've seen before, which is the Darksaber. And, you know, that all playing into this is just so fantastic. So, I mean, they they really just knocked it out of the park with this episode. I mean, it I what well, I remember watching this episode for the first time was like at that point, I was like, oh, no, this is the best episode of the season so far. I love episode one. Episode two was fine. With episode three. It was like, man, they're really going to have to keep raising the bar for this to get better. And I do love how they keep surprising us because I did feel like every episode almost in in both seasons had me thinking one thing was going to happen and then watching the episode and going, oh, man. For example, Bo-Katan coming back, her mentioning Ahsoka and then having more information about where the dark saber is and what she possibly wants to do with it. And it just really blew me away. It's nothing that I expected to see coming. Yeah. And that's a good point because also what's so great about this series and we'll, you know, the next episode represents this is we're not always on the same planet. Every episode, we're not always with the same group of characters. Every episode, we get a variety. Each episode is different from the next one. And it's not the same monster. It's not always the same villain every episode. So I like that world building. I like that the new locations, new characters or switching up characters and seeing them at different times, as opposed to some TV series where you're always with the same group and they're always at the same place. We're getting a lot of variety. These these do feel like mini movies. No, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, and, and I think The Siege, directed by Carl Brothers and... Uh, written by John Favreau is a is a good representation of that of the fact that you know uh, we're building on what we did in the first season uh, and we're taking these characters forward and you know one of the things that I really liked about this episode is obviously you know we're using the fact that uh, that he's going to go to Corvus to look for Ahsoka but the shape that you know even though he got it fixed by the Mon Cal. Uh, his ship still looks like absolute crap, but is not going to make it all the way there. So they stop off at Navarro just to hopefully get his ship fixed and maybe honestly rest. The guy could use a break. Uh, and it turns out that, you know, uh, Navarro has completely changed since the last time we saw it. And Cara Dune and Grief Karga have, have really revolutionized what this planet is like. Yeah, and that's a good point because the planet has changed again. It's just not the same thing. Things have changed. Things have moved on. 
And so we get to explore some of that. And the characters have changed. They're doing something different than we saw the last time. So once again, things have changed. Yeah, I really liked getting to see actually the turn that now Grief Karga and Cara Dune have made to being more like the good guys. You know, they're not just out for themselves anymore. They now have a purpose and they're helping to make Navarro great again. <laughs> well, I mean, and the you say that it's so funny because like uh, in that scene where when they're walking to what used to be the bar, um, it's now the school. There's in the background, uh, there is a statue to IG Eleven, uh, which is really funny. Mm, I didn't even um, catch that. He's like their, uh, you know, like city mascot, and so I think that's great. Um, and of course, we also see too. Yeah, you know, um, the Mithril has become basically an indentured servant to uh, Grief Karga, but that that person is redeeming themselves. You know, like this this whole show is about people kind of learning to redeem themselves mm -hmm. from their pasts, and I really like seeing that. And like you said, Bruce, I mean, yeah, we got Grief Karga. He's being the magistrate of this of this city that he's meant he was meant to be in the first place. You know, like uh, he he was a magistrate before and had fallen out and then, you know, part of the guild. And now he's back to the job that he should have had. Uh, and then Cardoon has found a purpose. She's put that fighting spirit to use to clean up this town. And damn, does she clean up this town well? I mean, when she's kicking those guys butts in this episode, it's pretty awesome. <laughs> Yeah, I thought the town, I, how much time has passed since the Mandalorian had been there? Because I thought it was a pretty dramatic change if it was a very short period of time. I, I mean, Do I don't know. know? Star Wars time is so nebulous. And so, mm -hmm. but I'm guessing that maybe it's been four or five months, maybe or something. I don't know. That would yeah. work. Yeah. 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 But we also got the Grogu cookies, which is great. Navarro nummies. Um, <laughs> yes, which I've ordered, and I got my wife for Christmas, So, uh, th and they're made with almond flour, and then I realized, oops, she's allergic to almonds, so I may be the one eating oh, no. them, but she's still getting them for Christmas, <laughs> so she can watch me eat them. Uh, <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, and the chase scenes, oh my gosh, those were fantastic. I, I loved seeing those, and the, and the TIE fighters coming out, and oh man, that, that whole thing, the spears. Mm. And they're coming down the cliff and everything and hitting the rocks. Love right. It. Like it felt like another trench run, which all of us that, you know, are Star Wars fans loved since the OT. So <laughs> I think that that was really cool. Well, and I mean, you saying that, Christy, is is so uh, this is proof of like if you're going to do those type of things, it needs to not just feel like a legitimate trench run like mm -hmm. The Force Awakens. Right. Where this is that, but it's in a completely different setting, but it still feels familiar. Right. You know, and so there's something really fun about that. And, you know, obviously, too, this this episode helps us with the mystery of what Dr. Pershing has been all about, because the, uh, you know, grief and 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 uh, Kara ask for help from the Mandalorian to put down this Imperial base which they have no idea is what it really is, which is this is a, a, a research facility. And we turns out that it's a research facility for cloning, which we see the cloning uh, pods. And we find out that 
one of the big things that they've been doing with with Baby Yoda is that he has a high metachlorine count, and they've been testing his blood for something. So, I mean, it's this episode does such a great job of laying more of that foundation of the mystery behind, you know, uh, Grogu and and everything about him um, and what it is that Moff Gideon has been wanting with this child and why. Uh, and so all of that stuff, I mean, I just remember having to like rewind that scene just so I could listen again more intently to what they were saying. And like the fact that they threw out M count, I was like, they just, they just used midichlorians. Like, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. It, and you just have to respect the Empire because they are really playing the long game once again with, you know, cloning and M counts and everything. The rebels, I feel like, are always having to fight and do, you know, whatever the next threat is. Whereas the Empire is really thinking about what are they going to do for the next 10 years. So good on them. And that's what I like about this series, too, is when you watch Return of the Jedi, I remember as a kid thinking, well, that's it. I mean, the Empire is gone. And then, of course, when if you read the books and legends, you know, the Empire lives on for a while. And now we're seeing that in this storyline, that they're still around. And to me, they may not be as in control of the universe as they were before, but they're still a huge threat. There's still a big component to what's going on within the galaxy. Yeah. So it doesn't feel like the Empire is dead at all. Right. Well, it's interesting because just having uh, read uh, Star Wars Archives, the new edition, uh, the uh, 1999 to 2005, you know, George spills at the end of that book. Uh, so I hire like a man getting it. He spills uh, exactly what um, his plans were for the sequel trilogy. Uh, and one of his plans for the sequel trilogy and, and, and the idea that was percolating in his brain, the thematic ideas from history were, you know, it's easy to start a rebellion. It's easier to win a war than it is to rule in peace and figure out how to um, live in the aftermath and how to create something out of that, how difficult that is. And this episode helps us to see that because, um, you know, at the end of this, we get visited again by one of the X-Wing pilots who's out uh, in this area. And he tells Kara, one, that he wants her to be part of the team. And two, he says, you know, there's something going on out here. And people in the core worlds don't believe it, but there's something not right out here. And so we're already planting the seeds of, you know, uh, they they are beholden, obviously, to what came in the sequel trilogy. But we already know that the New Republic is going to fail greatly uh, at its responsibilities. And so them laying those that groundwork here five, six years after Return of the Jedi with this character, it's, it's really good. And I think, you know, that's actually what makes... Um, the second episode, the passenger so important to this whole season, because that's that thread we're laying in, which is going to connect all the way to, you know, what we get in the force awakens and beyond. So, I mean, you know, that's, that's really interesting to me. Um, and I, and rewatching it, I was really struck by, yeah, there's this, 
there's these X-Wing pilots out here. They're trying to keep some sort of semblance of order and peace for the New Republic. And they're sensing something's going wrong. And people in the core worlds are already like, eh, you know. And we know Bruce from the Aftermath books, you know, Mon Mothma is stupidly like, yeah, we're going to disarm already. You know, like, so we already know things are are not right, you know. Um, And it's it's just, it's easier to figure out that something's not right out here on this side of the galaxy. And that ultimately you've always got to keep an eye on the dark side because they're, they're constantly looking for another angle. It seems like no matter every time that some big event happens and they're defeated, that someone in the empire still has a plan. And, you know, that's what end up combining to then become the first order. Yeah. A hundred percent, Christy. And, and obviously, you know, we kind of see and, and we'll talk about a little bit more when we get there. But uh, to those that last episode, but, you know, obviously that's the long game from off Gideon. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's not just thinking about the first order. I think he's thinking about the final order. So um, <laughs> but uh, we've reached the Jedi, which is directed by Dave Filoni and it was written by Dave Filoni and it uh, stars the one and only. Ahsoka Tano, as played by Rosario Dawson. And so, guys, this was obviously a huge episode for fandom. And um, what did you guys think? Wait, that was Ahsoka? I didn't know that was Ahsoka. No, I'm kidding. Um, I that was you know, so... <laughs> kidding. Exactly. Just kidding, folks. Is she dying again? <laughs> I... <laughs> You know, we're going into this knowing it's directed by Dave Filoni and written by him. And I turned to my wife and I said, how much you want to bet we're going to see Ahsoka in this episode? And I'm thinking maybe halfway through or something. And then like immediately, like it's it's the very beginning, we see Ahsoka. And I'm like, how cool was that? And I, I mean, I really enjoyed this because... You know, I've seen some people say online that it didn't really feel like Ahsoka. She doesn't seem the same. But I'm like, I mean, this is a more mature years later Ahsoka. I mean, she, I don't know what she's been through, but she's not the Ahsoka we knew in the Clone Wars. She's she's had a life even beyond that and what we saw in Rebels. And uh, I, I mean, it worked for me. I, I enjoyed it. I, I'm 100% with you, Bruce, because if you think about what we saw, and if, if people haven't seen her in Rebels, you'd need to watch Rebels, but uh, she had already been through a lot as of that point. So then now thinking of what she might have been through fighting wise and everything else since Rebels could have been huge. And you can see that in the way that Rosario is playing her on screen here. I think that she's showing that she's no longer the naive little snips that we knew from Clone Wars. She has seen some seriously terrible things and really tried to get in and help and work against them, but is not always having the easiest time with it. And I'm sure also really scarred by how things went with Anakin, because at this point she would know that he's now Darth Vader. So uh, I think that it's an accurate depiction and I like that it's a more serious version and more seasoned. And uh, I really love that they then have her recognizing the child and us finally getting his name. Yes. Even though it took some getting used to the name Grogu, 
by saying Baby Yoda all the mm-hmm. time. But yeah, we got his name. But I also thought this episode was cool because she's mysterious to this village or whatever. And it's kind of dark and the planet looks dead. I mean, it was kind of this. This has been a great episode to watch if it was around Halloween. Right. It's a dark, creepy forest and everything's dead. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, um, this this episode and... Uh, one, just the look of it uh, was was one, really interesting. And I, I think, you know, Dave was probably very influenced by the fact that, you know, we both live uh, on the West Coast and experience horrible and horrific uh, wildfires. Um, and I love that he kind of works that into this episode. You know, uh, the, the city magistrate, Morgan Elsbeth, is somebody who had worked for the uh the empire and helped you know basically strip mine planets to support the imperial starfleet being built and what's fascinating is she's doing it again because we also find out you know in this episode she's thrawn's lackey Mm -hmm. she works for thrawn and so is thrawn trying to build up a new imperial starfleet through somebody like morgan elsbeth which, you know, obviously just makes so fascinating to see what was going to happen in her own series now, uh, since Ahsoka has that limited run series coming. So that's awesome. But I mean, to watch that happen and watch the the destruction of the the, the Imperial type still happening uh, again, you know, connects really well with what we were talking about in that last episode, where there's something not right out here, and um. Ahsoka, like you guys said, being mysterious and being this kind of, I mean, in many ways, she just feels like what the Jedi were meant to be. Somebody who's helping to go right wrongs in the galaxy um, where they're needed. And this is definitely a place where it's needed because these people have no one and nothing. Um, And I really like that. And honestly, this is Dave's love letter to not only Star Wars and Ahsoka, but it's Kurosawa. Like, this yes. is a Kurosawa film. You know, having watched a few of his movies, you know, this is feels so akin to something like Yojimbo. Um, there are even scenes that kind of come straight out of that. So that was really great. Um, but I, you know, I think when I think of who Ahsoka is now, the last time chronologically that we saw Ahsoka was when she had been pulled into the world between worlds from the time period of leaving after her fight with Vader. Mm-hmm. So that's six or seven years from where we meet her now. So there's a lot that's happened to her, obviously. Um, and so I, I thought that Rosario Dawson did a great job with the character um, and, you know, loved seeing uh, her and her white lightsabers in action. And I loved the fact, obviously, that we learned that she's tracking down Grand Admiral Thrawn. Yeah, I think for everybody watching this episode, especially if you've known and enjoyed seeing Thrawn before, I was a big fan from Rebels. I haven't read the books yet, but uh, having that at the very end is the teaser for then what's to come. And I think everybody wants to see Ahsoka confront Thrawn or Thrawn appear at the end of an episode in her series. Uh, It just 
his name has so much weight to it. And I was telling this, my friend Amanda the other day that yes, Grin Moff, or sorry, Moff Gideon is a fearsome sight, but he's not known like we all know Thrawn and we know what Thrawn's capable of and his calculating nature and how he can pick someone apart like he did with Hera. And so then hearing Ahsoka at the very end of this one say, where's Thrawn? You go, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm really hoping we get to see a live action Thrawn. I mean, who would have ever imagined back when we read the books, when those first came out, that years later we would see him in animation form on screen. And now we could see him in live action. It's just it's thrilling. Well, and. And I think, you know, on top of that, one of the most interesting things here is that, you know, Ahsoka, she, we not only learn Grogu's name, but she tests him and she says that she will not train him. Um, But I love, uh, look, you know, I, I think people read a ton into this that's not necessarily correct. One, I, I think what Ahsoka realizes is that if if she were to take Grogu... He would have to leave the Mandalorian, and right now, the he's not ready to leave the Mandalorian. Um, he's not at that place yet. But also, you know, I think that she has a mission that she's on, and I don't think training somebody right now fits into the mission that she has for herself. Which I love is that you know the advice that she gives to Din is to take him to Tython. Put him on the seeing stone and allow him to make the choice. Like, and so Grogu is going to be the one who will make the choice um, about whether or not he wants to reach out in the force and look for a Jedi master to come find him or if he will not. And because just taking him from the Mandalorian right now, I don't think he's ready to make that choice yet. And, um, I I thought it it was really wise of her because she realizes, like with what happened with Anakin, you know, Anakin thought he was ready to leave his mother, but in all reality, he was not. And that fear um, that drove him, uh, it really, it hurt his training, obviously. It hurt who he was. And so I, um, I really, I really liked that. And then, uh, John Mills was going to be here, but something I wanted to mention because he's not, he, he just was not able to be here tonight. You know, we learned that Grogu was at the temple and had been trained by many masters there as a, as a youngling. And then he was rescued from what happens. And then his memory goes dark. And John's idea was this, and I, I think it's brilliant, that the reason his memory goes dark is not just because it was a dark time, but that, that he was put in stasis and that that's what that pod was. Um, and that's why he still seems like a baby. And so that, you know, obviously this species lifespan is totally different. But to me, that made complete sense that we might not have had the child, uh, you know, woken up, you know, very often and in all of that time. Uh, in those years, uh, and so that's why he still is so baby-like. 
Uh, so to me, that was just all of those things just kind of blew my mind. The fact that this this is what this episode is doing. We're 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 we've so much in here, and on top of it, the action is incredible. I like that. That's now in my head canon that he was in stasis, and it definitely could be true. By the way, I hate saying head canon, but <laughs> we all know what I mean by that. But. Yeah, because uh, I've often thought, wow, for a 50-year-old being and he's still acting like a baby and can't talk, it's like he sure doesn't develop very fast. Uh, but I also think about the scene where Ahsoka is testing Grogu and his abilities and he won't take an object from her and he would only take it from Din because he only trusts him. So to your point, he may not be ready to be separated. But I also think that she may also feel that she's not a true Jedi. You know, I think she thinks of herself maybe as once a Jedi, still kind of a Jedi, but she's her own thing. And for Grogu to get what he needs out of what he needs, it needs to come from a pure Jedi who's still following the Jedi ways. That is an excellent point, because that's kind of where I was originally going with it, Bruce, was that uh, I felt like Ahsoka didn't agree to train him because she felt like she also wasn't the appropriate Jedi to train him. That it did need to be someone who was still steeped in the Jedi ways, because we all know, too, from Clone Wars and from Rebels, that eventually Ahsoka leaves the Jedi Order and even says, I'm no Jedi. So, you know, she actually wouldn't then even think herself as the best person for this kind of thing. And to Matt's point earlier, she's on her own mission. She's doing something else. We don't know all her situations. Mm -hmm. She she might be in a position she can't take on someone to train and, and run around yeah. with her. She needs, you know, Grogu needs to go somewhere that's a little more stable. True. And I, I will say... I just wanted to tell you, Matt, I think that that point about possibly having Grogu be in stasis is a good idea because I haven't actually thought of that. I I sort of in a more silly way had thought maybe he had gotten knocked out and that's why he didn't remember. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that, you know, I, I would I would have agreed with you guys, but Dave kind of came out and said, you know, really, Ahsoka is still a Jedi. I mean, because everything she's living by is still the Jedi way. Um, and um, I, I think that it just has more to do with um, her being afraid that, one, if she took the child right now, who's not, you know, ready to leave, his, you know, Din, who's his father figure right now, um, that that would not be a good thing. And two, I just, like you, got, like you were saying, Bruce, this is, she's, she doesn't really have the time for it right now. Like she is on a completely different mission. And that mission is, um, you know, finding Thrawn who we know, you know, left with Ezra and, and that is her mission. Um, but it also seems like too, when you think about this idea of like who Morgan Elsbeth is and how, what her connection is with Thrawn, you know, Ahsoka calls uh, him her master. So he's up to something. So it kind of seems like, yeah, just speculation-wise, I feel like we could actually kind of get almost like a, a Thrawn trilogy, you know, um, here with all of these shows coming together uh, in the future, and he could be a part of that, 
you know, um, which how cool would that be? So it just, yeah, I think there's a lot of reasons why Ahsoka makes that decision. And it's going to be fascinating because obviously we're going to get to spend more time with her because she's going to get her own series. And that I can't wait for. Um, I just got to call out, though. One, Michael Bean is in this episode, which is great. Yeah. Um, and fantastic character work from him. Uh, the droids in this episode were really cool, too. And then the fight scene but between Morgan and Ahsoka was amazing it looked so good it was so cool to see her um fight with that beskar staff uh and against the lightsabers and of course we know now and and i even knew then that that was going to be really important going down the series uh with mando being given that pure beskar staff um which is just about the only thing that can go up against a dark saber so hmm, that's convenient <laughs> but still makes sense. Like it's not just there for yes. whatever yep. reason. But I will say my favorite scene from this episode in particular is actually when Ahsoka jumps down from the roof and ignites her saber right under her eyes. It was just beautiful how it lights up white and there she is looking at you. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Doe was great. Um so the the next episode of the season was the tragedy. Directed by Robert Rodriguez and and written by John Favreau, and this is um, a pretty pivotal episode because a lot of things happen to completely change the format of this show big time. Uh, and we get to Tython, and we place Grogu on the Seeing Stone, which still reminds me of Lord of the Rings with the Lost Seeing Stones. Um, which I don't know if either of you guys recognize it all, but. And John brought this to my attention, but that that stone looks like um, one of those uh, balls that we see in Jedi Fallen Order, uh, which was really cool. And we know this temple is is uh, and this this is one of the first places for the Jedi, if not the first. Uh, So, uh, yeah, I mean, what did you guys think about this episode, especially going to a place like Tython, which is. You know, it's been known in in the lore and, um, you know, it's, it's kind of a place akin to Octu in the sense of its importance to the Jedi. Did this live up to your expectations of what you thought this place might look like? Not really. I mean, it just, it was just very barren and the temple wasn't, there wasn't like a whole lot to it, you know? Uh, I mean, it was fine, but I, I never knew, I never knew what to really expect. I mean, just Were you wondering if temple, somebody was going to be like, I'm sorry, what's the force need with a starship? Yes, exactly. And Shakari. <laughs> I expected that. <laughs> From Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, just throwing that in there. But yeah, and uh, but uh, it was interesting how there's nothing really happening when they arrive there. And Grogu's just sitting there on that little ball thing, the little stone, and nothing's happening. And then when it does, I love how Mandalorian, the Mandalorian's always trying to get to him, and he can't because the energy field is just too much, and it just throws him away. Uh, so that was pretty cool. Um, but yeah, I expected, I don't know, I just expected something more to happen at the temple than just Grogu meditating, and then that's it. But I mean, I know what happens. He's communicating with the Force and trying to, you know, communicate for a Jedi to come. But I just expected something more to happen there. But mm-hmm. that's not a complaint. That was just my expectations. 
Yeah, I'm with you on that too, Bruce, because I definitely got the feeling, especially since Grogu was sitting there for so long and just completely, um, you know, unable to be distracted, that he was clearly communing with somebody and later we find out who. But I did kind of expect there to be more of a either like maybe we hear a voice or something that would allude to who it was, but maybe not give it away completely um, or what he was doing. But now, obviously, we get why. I I still think, though, as far as like what we expected of the temple, when I thought back to what we've seen of Jedi temples and, you know, places like that before, it's never really looked like much. Um, you know, it's, I guess, from like our ideas of what we think a religious place would look like, it is usually more grandiose than that. But, you know, for the Jedi, it's got to look more plain, I guess, because they don't want to be found out that it's more than what it appears to be. Well, I also wondered if it did look like more years ago, maybe. And now this is just a relic of itself. Well, and, and my thought process was, uh, and I was thinking, I just, because I kind of expected more, right. Um, But then I also had to remember, you know, Oct 2 is not all that exciting. No. It's a cave and a tree. So it's really, I mean, it's very natural. Uh, And so the fact that you would have a place like this that kind of feels almost Stonehenge-like is really cool. I think it's a really well-thought idea. Like, if this is one of the first places of the Jedi... Um, it makes sense that it would be something like this that feels very natural and organic, which fits what the Jedi were meant to be, which is people who were in touch and in communing with, you know, all living things, you know, Mm -hmm. and what better way to do that than with something so natural as like rock formations and stuff. So that part, I, once I thought about it, I was like, it made sense. Um, and you know, this is the scene stone. This isn't necessarily the temple. We may not have actually True. seen the temple at all. Uh, so that also helped in my thought process. But, you know, this is a big episode because it's the return of Boba Fett, who's come to get his armor back, uh, and uh, Fennec Shan. So the person that did approach Fennec Shan on Tatooine and, and that episode last year was, in fact, Boba Fett, and he saved her life. Uh, and now she has basically a life debt with him and she's traveling with him. And uh, it's a good thing that they arrive looking for Boba's armor because, you know, uh, they both help Mando be able to kick some Imperial booty uh, because otherwise he would have been completely screwed. <laughs> right. He's just trying to get the kid down and he's busy and <laughs> he needed some help. But yeah, I I was so excited to get that confirmation that Fennec Shand is alive, that it was Boba Fett that saved her. And it also felt like sort of a nod to, or not a nod to, but some paying some respect to people with different abilities, meaning, you know, her having these parts that are now added to her that are like droid parts and stuff to make her able to live in, again. Um because I actually had a friend who said that having um, type 1 diabetes and an insulin pump, it kind of made her feel like 
that's more normal because of seeing this kind of thing on a character in Star Wars. So that was just a totally different way of looking at it than I thought of before and made me really happy. I forgot about the machine parts. Yeah, that's the thing. I haven't had a chance to rewatch the whole season recently. Uh, I watched these episodes as they, as they came out several times. And as we're talking through, I'm like, oh, yeah, and this and oh, yeah, and that. And there's this fight scene was just really exciting to me because just seeing stormtroopers again, it's just, you know, I don't know. I always get a kick out of seeing stormtroopers and fighting them and just seeing different styles. And then for Boba Fett to be there, where I remember as a kid, Boba Fett, to me, always worked on the side of the stormtroopers to see. So now seeing Boba Fett fighting the stormtroopers was really awesome because it's like, yeah, he's his own man. He does his own thing. You know, he chooses what side he's on at the moment. He doesn't he's never on one side. It's it's what he feels like works for him in the moment. And now he's got a partner in crime. Yes. Well, it was neat because, um, you know, we learned some things about Jango Fett here. You know, when he's trying yes. to convince Mando to give him his armor back, we learned that Jango uh, fought in the Mandalorian Civil Wars, um, which is really interesting. And so I'm hoping we'll continue to find out more about those kind of things as we get into, uh, you know, the, the Boba Fett series. Uh, that we're going to ha- be having come out. But, yeah, you know, this this episode, I mean, changes everything in the sense that we get dark troopers who take Grogu. Uh, and on top of that, they they had the guts to destroy the Razor Crest, which is one of the things that I probably would have bet you money on that that would never happen. Yeah. I am still kind of uh, in shock and... Uh, I would say mourning the Razor Crest. I loved that ship, and I'm so sad that Mando lost it. Like that is a great ship. It was really cool. Yeah, it had the same vibe you have of like the Millennium Falcon, or at, for people that like Joss Whedon stuff, Firefly. Uh, it you know was a little old and beat up, but he loved it and it worked for everything he needed and he was going to fly it until it absolutely couldn't fly anymore. And then someone blew it to pieces. So I feel like that was the tragedy mentioned in the title. Oh, that's a good point. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, maybe he'll get another razor crest. It'll be the razor crest a, and then if that doesn't work out, the razor crest, B. (laughs) no bloody a, B, C or D. I think one of the things I'm, uh, and I, I think it's what's beautiful is that for the story they're telling, you needed him to end up with Boba Fett. He needed he needed uh, a reason, you know, basically for Boba Fett to be with him. It works better for them to be on one ship. But I just think it has it shows storytelling guts, and it is a precursor to what's going to happen in, in the next at the end of the season. Like there's been a some massive changes for Mando. Um, But if you think about it this way, that's literally Mando's life. Like his whole life just went up in smoke. Mm -hmm. Like everything he owns, everything that he is was in that ship and it's completely gone. (laughs) I just thought right now it'd been funny if Boba Fett would have said, I'm glad I got my armor just in time. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, it, it, the, it, well, it would have, at least the armor itself would have survived what it was, you know, 
attached to wouldn't have, but you know, it's Beskar, so um And at least he yeah, got I don't the know. Ball. I, I It's true. Yes. And and the spear. <laughs> He's got the yeah. the spear. Yeah. But um yeah, it's a it's a big episode uh, in that sense that like so much they're they're forecasting the rest of the season in the sense that there is going to be so much that changes. Um and I did want to add uh just something that I thought was really cool. I don't know if you both caught the reference to Raiders of the Lost Ark with that boulder that Fennec Shand kicks down the hill. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty funny. And yeah. I loved yeah. her moment getting to do the uh Jump, turn, and shoot midair was amazing. Yes, yes. classic. That was great. Everybody should get a chance to do that. Um, so the uh, I'm gonna the do pen- that right after the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let me get on that. Uh, the penultimate episode is the Believer, directed by Rick Famuyiwa. I think that's how you say his last name, and uh, also written by John Favreau. And we uh, begin the episode by. Uh, following up on where we ended the last episode, which is we got Mando going back to Navarro and telling Cardoon that he needs her help getting uh, Mayfield out of prison because he needs his Imperial codes uh, and uh, Imperial um, abilities because he was once an Imperial officer uh, to find where Moff Gideon is. uh, And, I I love this. I mean, this beginning is so cool. One, this prison, which they have, was really neat. I, I loved that the droids basically felt like a Republic, a New Republic K2 series, which is really cool. Um, and I just love that we're going to bring this character back because uh, he was, he's a lot of fun to spend time with in this episode. Like, him and Mando's interactions, I thought were... They had some great philosophical conversations, and um, I just think, you know, uh, Bill Burr is great, and anytime you can put him in an episode, you should. Um, and it, it turned out to be a really interesting adventure because, again, we're going to have a character who is going to put himself on a path of redemption. Yeah, I, I want to add in for sure, shout out to Bill Burr because... I didn't think that we were going to get to see him in any more episodes of The Mandalorian after the first season. I thought he was just kind of a throwaway character that was part of that one, um, you know, really heisty episode before. But getting to bring him back because they have this use for him and then also adding so much to him, like you were saying, Matt, with his redemption was really not expected and... uh and a nice, like, deep emotional moment having this side to him where it's not just that he's been in this for himself. It's that he's actually bitter because he couldn't be as awful as a human being as his officer was in the Empire. And so now when he's confronted with that same guy again, he can't just let it slide and turn his eye the other way. He has to just shoot the guy. And, and I love even the reaction of how he and Pedro Pascal are playing that scene because it's like it, it, Mando looks at him like, that wasn't part of the plan. <laughs> now we've got to kill everybody in here and get out. So I, I really enjoyed it. But I think it added so much more than just being 
like another heist episode. Yeah, because Mayfeld was having the conversation in the transport with with Din and says, you know, oh, I'm going to take my helmet out, off. You know, it's more comfortable. I don't know how you can wear that all the time. Oh, it feels so good without a helmet. And he is challenging once again Din to kind of question the way he's been taught and the way he's been how he has to wear the helmet all the time in his order. Because remember, we just talked about earlier the three Mandalorians who weren't wearing helmets. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, it's it's again that whole questioning of it, but it's through this other character. And you have to think that Din is sitting there thinking, maybe my way isn't the way. And then when he gets in a situation where he does have to take off his helmet to go to that device or whatever, to you know, the database to get the information he needs, he ha- his helmet is off. And it's one of the first times that, you know, really the second time we ever see him with his helmet off. But then here's a question for you guys. Then it scanned his face and gave him the information. What does that, how does the database recognize Din or, or is that not required? I mean, is he, was he somebody who may have been part of the Imperial Navy or something at one point? I think that's a really good question. Bruce and I think it's one that'll be fascinating to see answered because either you know when the Empire takes over uh, Mandalore uh, you know maybe his face is scanned at that point um, or something like that I mean you know uh, or is it just that you have to have like if you have the code cylinder you can get in it just has to be a face that gets scanned you know Mm -hmm, Um, right to make sure it's organic? I don't, I don't know. That's a great question. But I think, to me, the thing that stuck out, what really connects is that Mayfield challenges him about this idea of, like, you know, Imperial, New Republic, it's all the same, we're all just the same, and it doesn't really matter. Um, and, and what are the principles to which you hold to when you're pressed? And what we see here, and this is something that I was talking about all the way at the beginning, what really it comes down to Mando is willing to give up being able to ever put the helmet on again in front of the other, the children of the watch. uh, If that means that, that Grogu is going to be safe. His Mm -hmm. principle, his first principle is that, which is a self-sacrificial first principle. And that is exactly what Star Wars is is all about. So we have this character who, first season, no way, wants nothing to do with this child, wants to basically find a way to get rid of it as fast as possible, and slowly has come to be somebody who can't let this child go until he knows it's completely safe and is willing to break every rule in his religion if that's what it takes. And to me, that was a beautiful thing to see in this episode. And I would say on the other side, the beauty of Mayfield being like, bro, I won't ever tell anybody you took your helmet off. Nobody has to know. Like, again, you see that connection between him and Mando and this this kind of uh, redemptive side to him. And and so I think this this episode is a really beautiful episode with what it's doing for these characters and how it's pushing us towards that final episode in the showdown of of doing everything it takes to to save his child. Like mm-hmm. it's 
I, it's great. I, I, I couldn't be happier with how I feel like this episode turned out and what it did. And, you know, I also love that they reward Mayfield in the end by, um, letting him go, you know, like, um, they, they're giving him a second chance because they feel like he's earned, um, He's paid the penance and now he's earned the right at a second chance. And I'm hoping we get to see him again because it would be great um, to to have him back and, and to see that road to redemption really continue. Yeah, I think they look at Mayfeld and say, well, he's like us. He's just one of us. It's just, mm-hmm. you know, he got just caught up in a different circumstance that led to where he ended up being and that could have happened to any of us but he's he's just like Mm us i i think this is one of my favorite episodes of the season i love the way this was directed i love the uh chase scenes in the transport and just some of the camera (laughs) shots that were used on that and and the and the pirates to just keep coming Mm -hmm. and coming and coming and the when he breathes when he's like (sighs) and he gets back up you know it's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, speaking of Indiana Jones, it had that feeling to me, too, because, yep. you know, Harrison Ford, when he would play a character like Indiana Jones, and he did this with Han Solo, too, but, you know, it's that I'm the hero, but I'm also not perfect, and I get exhausted, right. and I just got to keep on going, yeah. you know? And then they also mentioned Operation Cinder, which I thought was cool because yes. I'm still yep. slowly getting through Alphabet Squadron and I'm like, oh, wait, I know what that reference is from. Yeah, I didn't get that one. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I did want to add too. I felt like it was so funny. It's so much funnier than just saying, oh, Mayfeld, you can go that they drew it out and actually wrote it in where it's like Cara Dune and Mando just having a conversation and they're like, yeah, I think he died. And he's going, so are you saying I should go? And they're like, yeah, like, I, I think he died hard. <laughs> he's like, I'm going. All right, I'm going now. <laughs> that was funny. Yeah. Uh, it made me wonder where he went. Right? What's he going <laughs> to do there now? And yeah. uh, I actually um, was really proud of myself because when we started watching Mando on the screen giving this speech to Moff Gideon of warning that he was coming for him. I thought that sounds so familiar. And sure enough, it was the exact same speech that Moff Gideon gave at the end of season one to Mando about how much the child meant to him. Yeah. So that was awesome. Yeah, no, I, I think it's, that was great. Um, and can we just mention the fact that Boba pulled out the sonic charge? Oh, yes. yes. I love those. <laughs> That's the best sound, isn't like, it? That was cool. It totally is. Totally legit. Totally yes. legit. Yay prequels. So, yeah. That was yes. incredible. Okay. So that we're was. At the f- Real quick. Go ahead. Real quick. Yeah. On this episode, my wife came home and she's a big Grogu fan. And she says, oh, wait, we got to watch some Mando. She always knows I see it right before she's seen it. And I said, she goes, I want to see Grogu. I'm like, not this episode. That's <laughs> this true. is the only episode the season he was not in. Oh, I didn't even think That's about that. That's so true. Huh. Okay. Uh, so we're at The Rescue, directed by Peyton Reed. He's back uh, and written by John Favreau. And uh, this is obviously a huge episode. Um, and I love the way we start off this episode with them capturing the Imperial Lambda shuttle. 
uh, so they can take that um, to, uh, you know, get to Moff Gideon. But it also just makes so much sense, too, because they're pursuing Dr. Pershing. Uh, which is really cool as well. And so I love this episode and how it sets itself up for what is going to be the final showdown on uh, Moff Gideon's cruiser uh, and how they actually plan to get on it in the first place, which really cool plan. Love seeing it executed. Um, And, uh, you know, if you're an Imperial and, you know, you're up against Cara Dune from Alderaan, who's pointing a blaster at your face, probably not a good idea to push her buttons on Alderaan being destroyed. I'm, I'm just going to, it just feels like that should be a good rule of thumb. Like, that should be a life lesson. Yeah, well, he's stupid anyway. So. <laughs> yes. And I mean, good point, because look at him and then look at the size of her compared to him. He should have known when to quit. True. He's just an arrogant jerk. <laughs> what? <laughs> He shot his friend. He's an arrogant jerk, and he shot That's his friend. That's true. I mean, his friend on. even tried to be like, I'm not with him. <laughs> oh, well. But I love how the doctor then, like, helps them. Yeah. It's like he doesn't have a side. It's like, look, I, I've had, I was forced to do this. I'm doing my research, and you guys want to get it? Fine, whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm just doing things. Just don't shoot me. Just don't shoot me, yeah. Well, and I think, you know, it, what makes it really interesting is that we do learn that his and and we all suspected this but he is a cloning expert mm-hmm. and so it's finally uh, completely out there that that's what he is um even though we've all suspected it from the beginning and so it's really neat to see that and i think that's going to play into some things uh, talk about in just a little bit um that i had in mind um but i I love that they go, you know, pick up Bo-Katan and, you know, she still has the Mandalorian fighter. Um, And one of the things that this episode does was I think it helps us see what man, what Boba Fett's feelings are on being a Mandalorian and whether or not he considers himself one or not. And I thought that was really fascinating because Bo tells him, you know, you're not a Mandalorian. And he says... I never said I was like, he doesn't really seem to, for me, he doesn't really seem to care about whether or not he's a Mandalorian. All he cares about is the fact that he got this armor from quote unquote, his dad, AKA his donor, (laughs) since he's a clone. Yeah, It's in honor of his dad. Yeah. Matt, I can't believe you just said that. That cracked me up. His donor. Well, I mean, but think about this. So I, I, I was I was having an offline conversation with somebody and and they were this idea was really percolating in it like he's a clone. What is Dr. Pershing? He's a cloner. So Boba being back, I think him being a clone is going to be important in that. Um because he's the only one left. You know, it's if true. you think about it, he was an unmodified clone which meant he didn't have the growth acceleration. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, he is just a perfect copy of what Jenga was. And uh, so this idea of we obviously we we know that the idea of testing Grogu's blood and cloning and all that stuff has to play into this. We know it's probably have something to do with everything that went on what we saw in the rise of Skywalker and bringing back Palpatine. And 
We even get in this episode, we get Gideon basically saying that and saying that his goal in this research with studying his blood is to help bring order back to the galaxy. And so it's like all of these things, I just love how they're all combining to make sense. Like Boba being back isn't just about it's cool to have Boba Fett back, I think. I think there's a lot more to the story, and that's probably where we're going to go in his series, which I'm super excited about. Yeah, uh, you know, since Dr. Pershing is, uh, a, makes clones, surprising Boba Fett didn't say, do I call you father? Do I call you papa? <laughs> you know? But yeah, there there is a whole opportunity there. And, and the fact that Boba still wears the armor, but not doesn't necessarily consider himself a Mandalorian, but he wears it because it's the armor of his father but if you look at the clones they were always in armor too and that yep. armor love it was styled after uh jango fett's armor there's similar Absolutely. style to it so it's kind of like an honor to all clones in a sense mm-hmm. um but i mean it's just just so cool just to see boba fett not only back in the uniform but he cleaned up the armor he repainted it. It looks fresh and new, except for a few dents. That was a big difference that everybody noticed from the last time we saw him to then this episode, was that in between those is when that happened. So that was an interesting thing. Um, I'm glad you mentioned that. And yeah, I like that he says, I never said I was, because that makes sense then. If you think to our original appearance of Boba back in Return of the Jedi, he never said he was. He has always had this armor, but we never really understood why other than getting it from his father. Um, and so now we're understanding more about how they relate to Mandalorians at all or not. Um, and so I do like that they're playing this back and forth of there's the people that consider being born there being truly Mandalorian. And then people like Din or Boba who think about being it or not in different ways. So it's sort of like there's even now a third group. <laughs> well, and it's, I mean, it, when we think about the history of Boba Fett, like when his dad is raising him, when Django's raising him, it doesn't seem as though Django's living as a Mandalorian, really. Mm-hmm. He's a bounty hunter who doesn't really seem to have too many ties that we can see um, to the Mandalorians, especially since we know Death Watch exists at that point. Um, you know, so he seems to possibly cut ties. That's, I mean, I'm speculating, but just kind of piecing it together from what we see. And again, Boba's feeling on this is pretty clear. He could care less whether or not he's a Mandalorian. He, that's not what matters to him. What matters is having the, the armor of his father. And I think, you know, this episode is really cool because obviously, um, you know, we see, uh, uh, Bo-Katan back and Koska and Fennec and they're all going to join forces to help um, free Grogu and I really love you know Bo is very keen obviously when she learns that uh, Gideon is there she wants Gideon she wants to take Gideon on she wants that that darksaber and uh, she Twice in this episode, she, you know, asks Din to join them um, when, you know, his his mission is complete with Grogu. And, uh, you know, I think, again, those are some really key points that are really important for where the series is going to go. 
Um, but man, when they, they're trying to land on the cruiser and they're launching those TIE fighters, I'm like, this looks just like Battlestar Galactica. Because <laughs> when they're watching them through the tube, it's the same way that Vipers <laughs> were launched right. on Battlestar Galactica. So I thought that was pretty funny. And then, of course, you know, the dark troopers just look like Cylons, basically. So a lot of BSG references in this episode. And then, you know, we have Starbuck. So exactly exactly <laughs> um i something that was really interesting obviously we learned too is um there has been some rules it seems added to the dark saber so basically it's the mandalorian and the elder saber elder wand it's very harry potter uh in that sense i thought that was really interesting but that by Beating him, beating Gideon in the battle, he is now the owner of the Darksaber, and he could lay claim to the Mandalorian throne because of that, and not Bo-Katan. I thought that was fascinating. So, what? yeah, how's that going to play out? Is he going to lay claim to the throne? He doesn't want it, right? But he wants to give her the saber... And she can't take it. She has to win it in mm-hmm. battle, which, of course, we know in Rebels, she was handed the saber by Sabine. But as Matt and I were talking earlier before the show, you know, you know, I was saying that it could be that once you have the saber, once you lose it, you can't get it back until you defeat someone in battle for it. It's got, there's got to be some connection about having it and then losing right, it. Right, like they wouldn't blatantly contradict themselves. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Never. Because that's what I was trying to remember, too, is whether it was handed or whether it was fought for back in Rebels. So, yeah, it was okay. handed. I rewatched that right before the show because I was thinking okay. about it. Yeah. And I mean, I think you're right, Bruce. I think that there is some some nuances. And again, you know, what we have seen throughout this entire show and what the Clone Wars did is like there's so much nuances to these races, you know, and isn't that just the way that it is in our world too? And so that's what I think makes this so cool. Um, can we just talk about how awesome it was to have Bo-Katan and Koska and Fennec and Dune just ripping through this ship together? Like, talk about an incredible moment just watching all these women kick some serious stormtrooper ass. <laughs> Yes, yes. I mean, it just, it reminded me a lot of A New Hope, just like running through the Death Star and going around and shooting troopers. It was, it had that feel to me. And also when, um, when Din is fighting, uh, Gideon in the corridor, that reminded me of the Obi-Wan Darth Vader battle, mm-hmm. in a sense. I, and the only thing was that I, there, in that scene in A New Hope, there really isn't any music that plays throughout that fight scene, and mm-hmm. there was some music in this one, and I wish that was one time they didn't have music in. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, I definitely did see what you were saying, Bruce, that like Moff Gideon's whole look is so Vader. He's got a chest box, he has a cape, it's all black. He's just a very menacing, dark figure anywhere he goes. And he's always got this look on his face like, I've already bested you. I'm just humoring you. So, yeah, yeah, I loved finally getting the payoff of seeing he and Moff Gideon fight each other, um, seeing the Darksaber versus the Beskar staff. 
Uh, and then, you know, the trickery of Bo thinking she's going to find Moff Gideon in the control room and he's actually in the cell with Grogu. Um, and I was just heartbroken seeing Grogu in tiny handcuffs. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, so they think that they have the dark troopers defeated. They have Moff Gideon. And then, of course, the dark troopers return and their only hope is somebody that come and rescue them. And my favorite line of the whole episode is when Kara's like, oh, great. One, one, uh, oh, great. One X-Wing. We're saved. (laughs) 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 And it turns out to be Jedi Master Luke Skywalker, which I legitimately would have bet you money that they would never have brought him on this show. And um, boy, do those Skywalkers love hallways and mowing people down. Well, I do want to add, though, when they first see the X-Wing and they try multiple times to contact it, there is no response. And I was like, they're not responding. Who is it? And so that's when I knew something was amiss. And originally, I predicted that it was going to be Ezra. So this totally caught me off guard from that standpoint, too. And so then seeing the green lightsaber light up was when my husband and I both went, oh, my God. I don't know. It's like, it's weird because I kind of expected that we might see Luke. And, and only because when Ahsoka said, you know, you have, I'm not, I can't train it. There's a, you know, you have to find another Jedi. I was like, well, what Jedi are still around that we know of? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, there's Ezra, there's Luke, you know, guess kind of Leia. But I mean, you really have a short list. And I really thought that if we see Luke in this, it would just be something like they go somewhere and there's a hooded figure there and they set Grogu down in front of him. He lifts, you know, takes his hood off and its face and that's it. Like, I didn't expect much of anything, just a reveal. But when I saw the X-Wing, I was like, okay, yeah, they're going to do it this way. Luke is arriving in the X-Wing. And then, you know, yeah, then that green lightsaber, it confirmed it even more. And I just kept thinking, well, are we, we're going to see his face, but how much? And I did not expect him to like stand there talking, having like a whole scene like that. I did not expect it to go that far. And the only thing that's still disappointed is because, you know, we know it's kind of like a CGI deep fake face or whatever going on. And my wife was telling my kids about the scene and she says, yeah, and Luke was there, a younger Luke. And they're like, how could that be? She goes, he was a CGI Luke. I said, how did you know it was CGI? She says, because it looked like it. And that's the one thing. It doesn't look perfect. It's great for what we can get. Yeah, and then it's R2 not Tarkin level, like right. no. you know, from Rogue One. But I think part of that is you know they're on a much more condensed, I mean, time schedule, obviously. And I think if you'd had like six months to put this together, you know, that's a different story than what I'm sure they right. probably had on this show. So, mm-hmm. but for what they had, it's great. Yeah, you know, and definitely well, a couple things I noticed was that one, uh, he's got a ton of movements in his lightsaber that are like Anakin which is really interesting, uh, which is really cool. Obviously, watching him basically do the Rogue One hallway scene, Mm -hmm. but with a good guy was fantastic. And I really love what he says to Din. Uh, One, you know, he says, Grogu's waiting for your permission to leave. Um, He has to have your permission that it's okay. But I also really love where he says, you know, that talent without training is nothing. And... In the um, 
the book, uh, the archives book uh, that I just read, George talks about this idea that, look, even though you can have these immaculate amount of midichlorians, this talent, basically, that you've been given, it takes dedication and training to hone that talent. And Ahsoka even said that before, how much you know discipline and training it takes to become a Jedi. And we even see that in Grogu. You know, he can use the Force, but it tires him out because he doesn't understand the connection in the way that he needs. Like, so I really love this idea because it's so key to all of us. Like, whatever talent we have, things don't, even people that are talented, they still have to work at it. They still have to practice. They still have to be taught. They still have to learn and grow. And I I think that that's just something that I really, you know, latched onto and how important that is that, you know, no matter what talent you have, you've got to train, you've got to be disciplined to master the gift. And so I I love that idea. And, and, you know, obviously for me, I think it's a, this show is completely shifted in the sense that Mando is somebody who now will take off his helmet. He does it again here to say goodbye to Grogu. Um, he doesn't have the razor crest. He is in possession of the dark saber and he no longer has the mission to keep the child safe. And I think it's really smart for this show to move forward and not just try and continue the greatest hits. You know, that's a that's always a frustration with any show is you just keep trying to do what's working. But here, again, they have the guts to move this story forward and move the story forward with Din because I think, you know, he's obviously going to be really important for... Mandalore and what comes next for them uh, and we're not just going to keep continuing to tell the same stories over and over and over again that just have a variation on a theme um, and that this first two chapters of the Mandalorian brings this part of the story to close and we're ready to open you know part two now I think that's amazing I'm glad you said that because when I think about the chapters I thought this really feels like the end this feels like the end of the series, but I know it's not. We're going to get more story, but this feels like it's a last chapter and that when we get into season three, I'm kind of curious if they kind of retitle The Mandalorian with some kind of subtitle and then we start the first episode of season three as a new chapter, a chapter one to a whole new story. Oh, maybe. That's a yeah, good point. I mean, could be. Because that would make sense. This like arc feels like it's come to a close and then now they would start a new story arc. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I wanted to add to what you were saying to Matt about it not being more of the same or greatest hits. I think that's the thing that this show as a whole has done the best is that from the get go, Favreau and Filoni said, we don't want this to just be a show about things we've always wanted to see. We want it to be answering some big questions for Star Wars fans since A New Hope. Things like, did Boba Fett survive after Return of the Jedi? Things like, are there others out there like Yoda? Or, um, you know, it, what is the Mandalorian culture all about? Or what happened in the desert between Return of the Jedi and you know, what comes after. So I, I love that it gets to do these things that we thought we'd never get answers to. And then it also ties in all of the other things like the animation and the books 
So I, that to me has been my favorite thing about watching the show so far. Yeah. Well, and it made Luke great again. So I'm excited about <laughs> there that. <you> <laughs> like he was amazing. And, uh, you know, and a little bit of what I always wanted to see, you know, especially having grown up reading all the EU books. Um, well, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the end credit sequence and the book of Boba Fett coming up. And so, man, I was not expecting that. Um, but very interesting for them to throw in, you know, the basically the end credit sequence like Marvel does. And, and, and oh, and you've seen this character. Now this is where they're going next. And so we have a new series coming up, which is its own series. We've had it confirmed. Uh, the book of Boba Fett coming out next year. And I, to me, I... I think he's going to be playing basically a underlord, you know, underworld kingpin since he's taken place at, you know, he's taken over Jabba's old palace. And um, I'm kind of interested to see that because, you know, again, um, George's idea for the um, sequel trilogy was to have uh, Darth Maul be the kingpin of the underworld uh, and uh, his apprentice would be Darth Talon. Uh, and, um, I'm kind of wondering if Boba might feel some of that role here, like be this person who's running, who starts to run the underworld, like if if that's where he wants to go. I don't know. That's where I'm thinking the show's going to go. Um, but hey, I, I think it's really cool that he just walked in and, uh, you know, completely killed Bib Fortuna, who had, wow, let himself go, <laughs> uh, and now is sitting on uh, the throne of Jabba's yeah. old palace. I guess it's Boba's palace now. Yeah, I, I kind of wonder if this series is going to be a little more fun than The Mandalorian. Like, a little more humor, a little more wackiness things. That's what I just get the sense from this last, this little teaser that we got at the end. That it might be a little more strange or fun. Is yeah. By the way, real quick, when the credits started to roll, it was not the same music and there wasn't the art. I was kind of disappointed. I was really like, sad Where's about the that. art? Yeah, missed the art. Yeah, but then this, you know, this was the the thing that made up for it. Yeah, it it definitely was a really cool feeling seeing the palace again. Um, seeing Bib Fortuna, you know, happy that he's now able to rule everything like he always wanted. I guess. <laughs> um, and I I think that it's neat getting to see the possibility of he and Fennec Shand working together in that. But I mean, you know, if you've seen anything that I've shared of my cosplay and stuff before, that the underworld is some of my favorite stuff in Star Wars because I've cosplayed as a bounty hunter before. So I'm all for it if we're going to get a series that's Boba Fett and Fennec Shand kingpins of the underworld. I'm Sign me up. Yeah, I think this is going to be great. Um you know, normally we rate things, um, and I, I don't think it's necessarily a thing to rate, but I, I'll just say um, I think, personally, this, this season of The Mandalorian raised the bar. Um, I think it was even better than the first season, and in some ways I just felt like the storytelling from episode uh, one of this season all the way to, to episode eight of this season was really cohesive uh, and told a... Uh, I mean, I felt like they learned from the first season and, and took out some of those kinks we had. And I thought this was 
an incredibly successful season of television and it's become i think and not just because it's star wars but just because i think it's a great show it's become the best show ongoing right now on television wait you don't think star trek discovery is the best show on te- i'm kidding um I think that the, I agree with you on just about everything you just said. Uh, I don't know if I would go so far as to say it's the best show on television. I'd have to think about that one for a while, but it's definitely one of the best. And uh, I, yeah, I agree with everything. I think it was it's it's getting better. I think this is a good show of what is to come in the quality that we're going to get on Disney Plus from Star Wars property. Um, I think that this format really works well for Star Wars because it's the right pacing and it gives the breathing room. They're trying to dry, uh, jam so much into a movie that gets bogged down in so many different scenes and storylines and it doesn't really get a chance to really focus and take its time on the characters where this does. And it feels more like the classic original trilogy type feel in these stories. So just for a rating, I mean, I have to do it. I just have to do it. It's five out of five eggs in a container that Grogu did not eat. (laughs) Very nice. Yeah. I'm with you. I think that it's for me, it's definitely the best thing on television at the moment. I think for sure, uh, it has really kept me and everyone else guessing. And that's something that I've really looked forward to every Friday when the episodes are out. Um, is I have no idea what I'm going to get next. And I think that it's been incredible, you know, like I said earlier, that it answers these huge questions that have been debates among Star Wars fans for years and years. So I can't wait to see where we go with season three, where we go with Book of Boba Fett, and then also now with the Ahsoka series. So uh, I think it's, or I don't think I know, it's at least made me excited for even more Star Wars content, if I could be more excited. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, well, Bruce, I mean, uh, so good, of course, always as you know, you're always welcome back in the 602 Club, but it was so good to be talking Star Wars with you again here. And uh, where can everybody find you uh, if they want to catch up with you? Well, you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. You can find me on Instagram at just Admiral Rex. And uh, you can find me on the positively trek podcast with dan gunther yes that dan gunther who i did literary treks with we're doing not just books but all the new episodes and just general star trek news and discussions so it's a whole array of different things on that podcast and obviously you like star wars so you'll hear me occasionally on the star wars report podcast of which i have listened to a lot oh good (laughs) is it because i'm on there christy is it that's the only reason yeah, I knew it. Uh, so if you want to catch up with me as well, <laughs> you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Bespin Bell. And of course, when I'm not here on the 602 Club with Matt, I do a show called Sabres and Spells on the Skywalking Through Neverland Network Skynet. And we have some huge news. We just came back with another episode after a long hiatus. So I hope that you'll jump in and listen to episode 11 called Mandalorians, Moths and More emphasis on the and more 
Uh, we we really just talk about chapter 14, the tragedy, and then our predictions for moving forward. This was before we saw the last two episodes of the season. Um, but it's funny. You'll enjoy it. Well, and you can find me, of course, on uh, all the social media platforms out there that I'm a part of. I'm under Matt Rushing 2 so just search for that. Uh, of course, you can find me here on the network doing literary tracks and The Orb with Chris Jones. Literary tracks about the books and the comics of Star Trek and, of course, uh the orb is about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. I'm doing a little show called Aggressive Negotiations on the, on the Nerd Party Network with John Mills as we talk about uh, Star Wars each and every week. So uh, you can also find me doing Owl Post with Drea Kaufman as we talk about Harry Potter each and every week, one chapter at a time. Uh, and uh, just to let you know, there is a new short run series that is going to be coming to you here soon on the 602 club so you will have to listen for that we'll be announcing that hopefully soon uh but uh yeah just wanted to let you guys know that you have something else to be looking forward to out there and thank you so much for joining us y'all come back now you hear. here